Well, we do find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be a pew Bible in front of you, and so we ask that you would please grab one of those and find the book of Romans, and uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. This is where we're going to spend most of our time, and it will benefit you tremendously to be looking at God's Word uh, with us as we study. Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. Let me read. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, Jill was an orphan. She never knew her parents, only that she was left on the steps of the local police precinct. As she grew, she bounced around orphanages. She moved from group home to group home, from one sad situation to another. She really only belonged to the amorphous government. They told her she was a ward of the state, and it didn't leave the warm fuzzies in her heart. She even had a few adoption hopes, but her so-called imperfections, flaws, caused two possible adoptions to fall through. Somehow, by God's grace, she made it through high school with decent grades and went on to study in university. And then, for the first time in her life, she finally felt like she belonged somewhere. She discovered sorority life, sisterhood, Girls her age embraced her, perhaps closer than their own families. She started dating a young man from their brother fraternity, and she couldn't help but think, this is what I was missing. And then graduation day came and went, and months turned into years, and all that remained of Jill's sense of belonging turned to memories. No job replaced that sense of belonging from college. Relationships seemed to come and go, and each one felt a little less significant. Until she met Jordan. They married, they had three kids, and the first time she not only felt a sense of belonging, she actually belonged to a family. You see, when we hear the word belonging, many of us think of it in terms of feelings. We have a phrase, don't we? A sense of belonging. But if our hope rests on finding our belonging, our community, our people, perhaps our family, and a feeling that comes from that, our hopes are built on shifting sands. Because even the best of family situations will often have death as a reality. For when Jill's kids were five, eight, and ten, tragedy struck her life. Her husband was diagnosed with cancer and then died within a year. 
death certainly still stung. And her greatest sense of belonging faded for Jill. You see, whether death comes at 42 or 92, death comes for all. It's inevitable. Death is the constant for those who live in this sin-cursed world. All belongings that we hoped would bring meaning and satisfaction in life can fade and be severed in a moment, except one. That is our only hope in life and death, that we are not our own, but belong to God. You see, belonging to God is not just a sense we get when we feel close to him or are part of a church family or have a really good time studying his word. It is not a temporary belonging that can fade or be cut off. No, to belong to God is a permanent fixture for all of life, even in death. Why? Because of what we celebrate this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we often say, as we've said already twice this morning, he is risen, and you reply with, and that is because we are reminded again that this is not some fairy tale. This is not some thing that we have to kind of make us hope that life will be okay in the end. This is reality. And so this morning as we are here celebrating the resurrection of Christ, you need to ask yourself, do I belong to God? Do I have an eternal relationship with the Heavenly Father to whom I cry out, Abba, or Daddy, or Father? Do I have the hope in the face of death because I am confident in God's promised resurrection? But perhaps these aren't the first questions we should ask. I think before we try to discern if we belong to God, maybe we should make sure we figure out, number one, who is God? And number two, how is it that he tells us we can belong to him? Well, that's the theme of this Resurrection Sunday message. Learning to see God for who he is as Trinity or Triunity, one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And appreciating what God has done, how each person of the triune God is uniquely involved in both the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our future resurrection, and securing our great hope of belonging permanently to God. So the title of this morning's message is The Trinity, Resurrection, and Belonging. And this morning, we're going to consider three exclusive realities of belonging to God. Three exclusive realities of belonging to God. As much as we may feel the temporary satisfaction of friends and family, of a comfortable house where we feel at home, belonging to God is not achievable through many different paths or whatever might work for you. It isn't a feeling of peace that comes by varied means. 
No, belonging to God humanity is humanity's greatest need, and it comes by one path. The Bible calls it a narrow path that leads to life. So let's consider our first exclusive reality of belonging to God. Number one, only because of Christ and by the Spirit can we belong to God. Number one, only because of Christ and by the Spirit can we belong to God. See, God's narrow path started way back in the Garden of Eden. We talked about it in our catechism question this morning because it's in the garden that we discover what is wrong with this world. How it is that little Jills can grow up without families. How it is that death becomes a reality for everyone who lives even when we do not expect it. It was in the Garden of Eden that everything was good until Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They were deceived by Satan. They began to question God's goodness, and they put themselves as judge of what is best rather than listen to the Creator. And from that point on, God cursed all of creation, which would now decay, even groan, as Romans 8.22 tells us. Sin brought about death, yes, but it also brings about things like earthquakes, famines, floods, and so much more. And a sin nature now infects every baby born since. It's like a disease, God tells us. He says we are all born in sin and guilt, according to Romans 5 and Psalm 51. And since God is holy, perfect, and without flaw, no imperfection, no sin can enter into his presence, let alone belong to him and his family, let alone be considered a son or a daughter. And so the biggest problem to plague this creation is sin. And the biggest personal problem common to all men and every woman who's ever lived is their sin before a holy God. We are not born neutral. We are not simply a mixture of good and bad. Without a radical change happening in our life, we are literally described in multiple places in the Bible as enemies of God. We happen to be two verses after one such place. Look back in Romans 8, verse 7. We see these words, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we're reminded that the flesh is not simply the the physicalness of our existence, but the flesh is the worldly way of thinking, the way of thinking that says, I am going to be the judge, not you, God. I will discern what is right and what is best for me, for my life, for my loved ones, not you, God, because I know best and you put yourself as God. so a man who is living in the flesh, a woman who is living in the flesh, is literally here hostile to God. See, the natural state that we all have before God isn't one of belonging. We're not all children of God by birth. 
Our natural state before God isn't one of Christ standing at a pretty good door of our heart, knocking and saying, ah, maybe you might come in one day. No, our natural state is entrenched warfare committed to the long slog of years of doing exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden several thousand years ago. Disobeying God and pretending like we know what's best for our lives. By nature, we don't belong to God. Beloved, that is our greatest need. And Paul is confident, as we just saw. There is something about Christians that make us different, that make us no longer enemies, no longer in hostility against God, no longer at war with God, but we as Christians can actually belong to God. Let's see what he says in verse 9 now. Verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Well, first of all, we belong to God because God the Holy Spirit has done something miraculous in every Christian's life. Literally, it says God the Holy Spirit indwells us. And this isn't because we invited the Holy Spirit to come in in a moment. This is because God, the Holy Spirit, moved where he wanted to move, changed our hearts, regenerated our hearts, made us brand new. You see, the Bible not only says we are born as enemies of God, it says we are born spiritually dead. And the Spirit gives life. The Spirit turns our dead heart into a living heart. Ezekiel 36, God promises that the Holy Spirit will take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh as you turn and embrace the gospel message. How does this happen? How does the Holy Spirit indwell us? What happens from knowing and trusting the message of Jesus? Look at verse 9 continues. Verse 9 says, the second half of the verse, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Notice now it's the Spirit of Christ. Earlier in the verse, what does it say? The Spirit of who? It's the Spirit of God. This tells us something important about the person of God. He is triune. He is Trinity. There's one God, three persons. And each person of the Trinity is uniquely involved in God's work in giving us new life, in forgiving our sins, in assuring us that we are no longer enemies of God, but belong to God. And now in the second half of verse 9, it's not just God the Father. It's not just the Holy Spirit, but it is the Holy Spirit of God. Christ, of Jesus, of God the Son. It's the Holy Spirit who's connected to Christ that causes us to belong. You see that word at the end of verse 9? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, to God. For it is the person of Jesus, God the Son, God who took on flesh, who accomplished what was otherwise impossible. You guys remember our greatest problem that is common to humanity. It's that we're born in sin, born spiritually dead, unable to do enough to please God. So in order to belong to God, we have to be reconciled. We have to no longer be enemies of God. 
And this doesn't happen by God just looking past our sin, saying, ah, boys will be boys. Ah, that's just a phase in that person's life. We'll just look past that. It's okay. To belong to God, your sins have to be punished. Way back in Genesis again, God set up these concepts to set the stage for the coming of God the Son into the world. First thing that God did was to promise Adam and Eve that one of their sons would crush the head of the serpent, the snake. He would one day put an end to Satan, to sin, to death. And so it is often known that Jesus is the snake crusher. But that's not all. Next, God shows us in Genesis, grace. A free gift that, that no one deserved. And instead of de dying immediately for their sins, as maybe Adam and Eve, and certainly Adam and Eve, expected, God poured out his just, his fair wrath on an animal who died in their place. See, as they left the garden, God killed an animal in place of Adam and Eve. Teaching Adam and Eve... The only punishment for sin is indeed death. And yet God is gracious. And he gave them the skins of that animal that he killed to put on his clothes. Why did he do that? As a daily reminder that sin results in death and they need to be covered by that death. God's forgiveness and God's grace could then be experienced through a substitute. And so from Adam and Eve onward, God told men to look for a snake crusher and a better substitute sacrifice, the Lamb of God. You see, that is why Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh, being true God and true man. Jesus could live the perfect life that we couldn't live. And the death that he died on the cross, he died to sin once and for all. As Jesus of Nazareth hung on the cross, he wasn't just a man in the wrong place at the wrong time. He wasn't just the victim of corrupt governmental punishments. Using the language of Isaiah 53, Jesus was crushed for our sins. It pleased the Father to pour out wrath on his Son for all sin. So to belong to God exclusively comes because of the work of Jesus Christ. You're in Romans 8. Go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. We see these words in Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified or made righteous or declared to be righteous by Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are already reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, God the Father crushed the Son in our place because we are enemies of God. The only way we belong to God is if Christ's payment for sins has covered our debt. Look at point number one on the screen. How is it that we belong to God? Well, it's only because of Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Go back to Romans 8, verse 9 again. Paul assumes of every Christian that if you belong to God, you dwell with the Holy Spirit. And you might be thinking, oh, okay, great. <laughs> what does that actually look like? Will I feel the Holy Spirit rush upon me? Will I do something miraculous or crazy to show that God, the Holy Spirit, dwells within me? What does that mean? It's not actually that difficult to understand. You see, the best evidence that the Holy Spirit dwells within you is that you trust the finished work of Christ. You've turned from thinking that you get to be God of your own ways, and you no longer think that you're the best judge of what's right for you, but you instead trust God and his ways. You trust that Christ paid the necessary payment for your sin. You see, only those who God has worked in are able to do that. This message is foolish to those who are living in the flesh. Some of you might be even here as scoffers and think, you know what, this is ridiculous. I'm here because I love my parents. I'm here because I love ones asked me to. And only because the Holy Spirit, and only if the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart, does this message become a little bit less foolish. And it turns into something precious. It turns into something that we want to live our lives for. You want to know if God, the Holy Spirit, is doing a work of renewing your heart? If the Holy Spirit dwells within you? Then look at how you think about Jesus. Is he Lord of your life? Do you live for him as king? That's why Paul says it isn't just God the Father and God the Holy Spirit involved in saving you. It is only because of the work of Jesus Christ. He says at the end of verse 9, right? Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ that's associated and intimately connected with the spirit or, or the work of Christ does not then belong to God. So it is by the spirit of Christ, the spirit promised by Christ, the spirit who exalts Christ crucified on your behalf, that we belong to God. It's exclusive we belong to God only because of Christ and only by the power of the Spirit to renew our hearts. Well, anytime I see an article about Christianity, I try to read it to see what people think of the church in America. Well, I read an article yesterday that attempted to give advice to churches on how they could thrive in 2023 in America. Essentially, it boiled down to two basic and simple pieces of advice, all right? Number one, be willing to embrace immigrant Christians from around the world. Amen. Great advice. Good 
call Mr. Article. But number two was heresy. Stop thinking that your ideas about Jesus are the only right way to get to God. And see, Jesus said very clearly in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The exclusive path, the narrow path that leads anyone to belong to God comes through the perfect sacrifice of Christ alone and by the power of the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts. And when you trust in Christ's work and you permanently belong to God, we see a second exclusive reality. A second exclusive reality, number two here. Belonging to God always results in a transformed life. Number two, belonging to God always results in a transformed life. We see that in verse 10. Well, there are a ton of weight loss ads out there on YouTube. And then I typed that out and I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe the algorithms think I'm just an overweight guy and they're just targeting me or something like that, okay? I'm not sure, maybe you, I'm the only person who gets these ads, maybe you get them too, whatever. You've probably seen them though, okay? The ads for, for weight loss are ubiquitous. Every weight loss ad for generations now promises amazing results. It shows before and after pictures. It promises that if you follow this diet, take this pill, get a simple procedure, it'll give you a new lease on life. And then they back up their claims with pictures of the results. I mean, would anyone put yourself through the things that they were telling you to do if there were no results? Or if they admit, you know what, results are kind of mixed on this thing. Some it works, some it doesn't. We all want something that works. Whether it's a plan to lose weight, an investment strategy, or a plan to manage time better, we want results. See, that's what's great about God working in our life. God the Father didn't send Jesus to die for our sins, and God the Holy Spirit didn't, didn't regenerate our hearts to let us continue in the same old spiritually soft and flabby self. When God works in our lives, he always brings results. And if the results aren't there, maybe it's not working. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, and stop right there, Careful readers might look at that and say, but isn't it the Spirit who's in us, right? Isn't that what verse 10 said? Verse 9 said? But here in verse 10 it says, now Christ is in you. Well, that's true enough that this is not to say that God the Holy Spirit and God the Son or Christ are exactly the same person. But this points to the reality that God, when he saves us, is doing things as Trinity, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so you can interchange some of these things, and it's fine because the triune God is at work in us, even though the Spirit is the one who indeed dwells in us. We can say that Christ is in us as well. Assuring us that when God works, results follow. So if Christ is in you, verse 10, Although the body is dead because of sin, he says the spirit is life or gives life because of righteousness or because of the righteousness that we see. 
You see, for a chapter and a half now, Paul has been talking about how the body or, or the flesh still draws us to sin. How we struggle to have self-control. How we are pulled towards various sinful habits. How we're prone to think we're always right even when we're obviously wrong. But in spite of our struggles with the flesh, our ongoing struggles with sin, in spite of our struggles to live as God wants us to live, we, if we're Christians, will still grow. Because we're one with Christ. We're covered by his perfect sacrifice. Because we have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we belong to God. We don't have to stay in sin. We can actually live a different and transformed life. And so Paul says, the Holy Spirit is life there in verse 10, right? The Holy Spirit is the source and the giver of life, and he grows us in what? In righteousness. Read that verse again then. But if Christ is in you, if you have embraced Christ and you trust in him as Lord and Savior, although the body is dead because of sin, although you continue to struggle with sin, the Spirit is life. He gives life. He is equated with life because of righteousness, because of the righteousness that he leads us to do. You see, this is another exclusive promise for Christians. Sure, anyone can learn better habits, can become more productive in life, can even lose a lot of weight, but only Christians are liberated to pursue true righteousness. Only Christians have our blinders off to know God and to live for his glory above our own. Only Christians will forever belong to his family. Go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. I want you to see this. This is a description of what it looks like when we become Christians. Romans 6, verse 6 and 7. <clears throat> We know that our old self was crucified with him, that is, with Christ, in order that the body of sin, that ongoing uh, slavery to sin, as it says, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died with Christ has been set free from sin, See, the Christian life is a life of freedom, not, not libertarian freedom to do whatever it is that we want to do to kind of pursue whatever course of action we want to do, but true freedom. And true freedom is described here as the freedom to know God, to, to live according to his good design, to follow his will, to know his will, and to do it. And what cements this certain hope for the Christians? Nothing less what we celebrate today, the resurrection. It is certainly true that Christ was counted as sin in our place, that we must be counted as one with Christ in his death. Yet what gives us hope that death is not the end is that Christ was raised from the dead. And just as we are one with Christ in his death, covered by his blood, so too we are a new creation with a certain hope of eternal life. You see, Paul continues in Romans 6 with these words. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, 
we believe that we will also live with him. You see the injection of the resurrection? He's going to continue. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see what is true of every Christian because of what God has done, because of the resurrected power that is at work within us, we will be able to live a transformed life. We are no longer slaves to sin. And so we're reminded again in Romans 8 as well of our third Blessing of belonging to God. Number three, resurrection power forever keeps those who belong to God. Resurrection power forever keeps those who belong to God. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 before we look at the last verse of Romans 8. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We talk a lot about the cross. We have crosses on our churches, on jewelry, perhaps on shirts, and perhaps on stationery. But without a doubt, the greater and more central event in the minds of every early Christian was not the cross. It was the resurrection. You see, Christians celebrated the resurrection every single week. For they met and they worshipped on the first day of the week. Why? This is not a day off in ancient Jewish culture. The first day of the week, Sundays, was certainly not important in Roman culture. Everyone would have worked on that day. But for Christians, there was no other day to gather together to worship than Sunday. Why? For it was a day that they remembered the power behind their great hope. The resurrection. So vital was the resurrection that Paul told the Corinthians, without the literal, physical, bodily resurrection from Jesus, uh, of Jesus from the dead, then Christianity is meaningless. He starts off Romans chapter, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he talks about how there were many eyewitnesses that Jesus himself appeared to the apostles, of course, we know that. But then he also appeared to 500 people at once, and many of those people were still around and were able to give testimony to that. And if Jesus had not risen from the dead, it would have been easy for the authorities to produce a body, but they couldn't. And there were tons of eyewitnesses around who said, I saw the risen Christ. You want to know why this small, little, tiny religion, uh, break off of Judaism, flourished? That's only attributed to God and the reality of the resurrection. And so Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now let's just pause there. I mean, this is not that uncommon, okay? How many people today think, oh, this is just matter, we just are, have these bodies and we live and we die and it is what it is, right? There's no life after death. And yet here, he's so clear. He said, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
how can some of you say, oh, there's no such thing as resurrection? The ancient Romans were just as natural as we are today. We continue. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because he testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. There's no such thing as being forgiven by God. There's no such thing as redemption. There's no such thing as reconciliation. There's no such thing as belonging to God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Verse 18. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're done. They perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. But it is indeed a fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. Beloved, we do not serve a dead Savior, but the risen Lord of all. And with his resurrection, we are certain that for us, death is not the end either. We are certain that our hope is both in this life and the next. So turn back to Romans chapter 8, as you see it in, these, in this last verse. Paul is going to talk about the glories of the resurrection in verse 11. He's going to note again how the triune God was uniquely involved in that greatest of all events and how that gives glory to him and gives every Christian a cer certain eternal hope. Look at verse 11, Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Let's pause right there for a second. This is the same assumption of the last two verses, right? God, the Holy Spirit, by definition, resides in every single Christian. He has worked in us to give us eyes to see and, and ears to hear. And he continues to work to transform our lives, to conform us to God's will. But notice the emphasis now is on connecting the Spirit with resurrection power in verse 11. So he says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You see that connection there? But, but who is the him who raised Jesus from the dead? It can't be Christ. Christ didn't raise himself from the dead. He willingly gave himself up to be a sacrifice for sins. It can't be the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And so the he's and the him's in verse 11 must be God the Father. Because remember, we have a triune God, don't we? So look at verse 11 again. If the Spirit of him, that is the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you... He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that is the Father, the Father will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. See, the God the Father promises to give every Christian resurrected life. And how does God the Father work? The end of verse 11 is so clear. 
God the Father resurrects our lives or promises to give us resurrected life through his spirit. So it is that the Father promises to raise us through God the Holy Spirit. The Father redeems us because of the work of the Son and works then in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a richness to God's work, isn't it? So Christians repeat these words of Scripture often in the face of death. We will often say, death, you've lost your what? Sting. We say that because Christ has paid for our sins, and since God the Father raised him up to life through the power of the Spirit. The Christian's blessed assurance comes from being one with Christ, united in his death and his resurrection. There's absolute certainty in these verses. Belonging to God means that God will assuredly raise every Christian to new, eternal life. Notice also that eternal life or heaven isn't some spiritual bliss. It isn't some ultimate state of peace or melding into oneness with God, all right? There's a lot of weird ideas out there. No, the great hope that we have is a physical, bodily resurrection just like Jesus As 1 Corinthians 15 says, our glorified body will be like his, a perfect physical body lived in a new earth, no more struggles with sin, only belonging to God's eternal family forever, forever safe in his arms, really living exactly as God designed us to live in the new creation. But this resurrection hope isn't just nice to know as we lay on our deathbed. No, this resurrection hope helps us live confidently even today. So as we close, go to the end of Romans chapter 8, verse 31. We're going to see how the resurrection of Christ is meant to encourage us today. Romans 8, verse 31. If we belong to God, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If we belong to God, nothing can be against us. If he's for us, then then nothing can, can take us from his arms. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No gift, no intense need is greater than the gift of Christ. If God gave you Christ, then surely he'll give us everything we need. To belong to God is, not, is to know and to cherish the, the gift of Christ. He continues, verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen ones, his elect? It is God who justifies. God's the one who declares us right. Verse 34, who is to condemn anyone who belongs to God? Christ Jesus is the one who died for our sins. More than that, who was raised. You see, if we belong to Christ, we are united with Christ in both his death, his payment for sins, and his life, his promise of eternal life. And part of what gives the Christian ongoing hope is, yes, our future is secure. But every single day, the risen Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, welcoming us, reminding us, you belong here because of me. And so we can come to the heavenly throne room of God and lift up anything and everything at all times. 
Look what he says in 34 again. Who's to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, and now who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if the Holy Spirit indwells you, if God the Father declares you righteous and that we belong to him, and if God the Son sits and intercedes for you, is there anything to fear? Verse 35, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37 continues, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, the blessed hope that we have as Christians. Belonging to God means that his resurrection power will keep us forever. Nothing can separate us. And that should radically change how you live. The New Hebrides were first discovered by Europeans in the year 1606. It was an island chain of some 80 islands that were known to be home to many cannibalistic tribes, and very few ventured aground on these islands. In fact, it took 230 years before two London missionaries made the first attempt to bring God's gospel hope to these tribes. And just minutes after going ashore, these two were killed and eaten by cannibals. Less than 20 years later, John G. Patton, knowing the story well, and yet still, had decided to take his young wife, leave Scotland, and set sail for the New Hebrides. At their farewell meeting with their beloved church family, an elderly man attempted to dissuade them from going, crying out, Cannibals! You'll be eaten by cannibals! To which Patton responded, and I wish we could just speak like this off the cuff, right? Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Now that's a subtle trust in God's resurrection power. Patton was not some super saint. He was an ordinary Christian who knew that he belonged to God. He knew the powerful work of God the Son. His life had been transformed by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And he resolutely trusted in the eternal safety of belonging in the Father's home. This life-transforming power, this resurrection power is available now to everyone who would come to Christ. And so if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day where you can turn away from living as king of your life and turn to worship Christ as king of your life, trusting that he has paid the penalty for your sin. He has solved your greatest need. And that response of turning and trusting in Christ will have radical implications in your life. 
No longer will you continue to live for you, but you'll want to be a part of Christ's body, his family, his church family. You'll want to be a part of a, a community where you will belong physically here and recognize that you belong to God. And if you're a Christian, rest in the sweet reality that you indeed belong to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious truth that we've seen in your word. We thank you for the wonderful reminder that because of the powerful resurrection that is at work within us, nothing can separate us from your love. Oh Lord, we ask that you would draw us ever closer to you, that you would protect us from the discouragement of struggles with sin, of difficulties, of pain, and things in our life that we do not like, and trials. Lord, I pray that you would help us to lean into you, lean into the great reality that we have Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us leave today as those who are renewed, reinvigorated, to walk closely with you. I pray that if there are those here who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of new life, where your spirit convicts them of sin and turns their heart ever closer to you. We pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen.